Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and once again welcome to Cracking Addiction. Today we have with us the good Dr. Daniel Pham. How are you? Well Fergal, thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. So I thought today we'd embark upon a journey of discovery into the world of dual diagnosis. So what is dual diagnosis? Ah, straight, to the, straight to the heart of it. Um, and I guess we should give a bit of context of why we chose this, because um, initially I came a couple of months ago for talking about trauma and substance use. And uh, we do have this idea, dear listener and viewer, that we want to cover a bit more about psychiatry and mental health. But really, this would be a good place to start with the basic sort of foundation. I talk about, you know, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, you're addiction in medicine, we're talking about dual diagnosis. What does it all mean? Because I think it really does play the sort of ground, lay the ground for future discussions about psychiatry in the context of addictions in this hallowed podcast slash YouTube series. <laughs> so I guess coming back to that term dual diagnosis, what is dual diagnosis? If you take it as bare definition, you have two diagnoses side by side. And it's interesting because dual diagnosis is a term that's often used in other contexts. Um, so even when I was a registrar, dual diagnosis meant having um, concurrent mental health and uh, cognitive impairment or intellectual disability. Mm. But in this context, I think dual diagnosis very much means having both a mental health disorder and addiction disorder, a substance use disorder. Um, and as with many things in the addiction sphere, language is key and terminology is very cri critical. Um, Dual diagnosis gets bandied about, but you may also so may also see comorbidity, and that sort of also implies having two or more diagnoses. I guess dual diagnosis really pigeonholes you to having two, where in reality people can have many. Comorbidity sort of implies again that you have mental health and substance use issues, and one sort of leads into the other. But that also has a, a little bit of a um, weakness in that sometimes they don't have any sort of connection or they exist alongside each other without obvious connection. So I believe the current uh, accepted sort of more, more acceptable term is co-occurring disorders, just to throw it out there. But really we're talking about having mental health issues and substance use issues together because they are very much co-linked. Co when I was training dual diagnosis was um, actually having two medical conditions impacting upon each other. And then, you know, when I first came to Australia, I thought that dual diagnosis was having a mental health disorder and a medical uh, problem, like for instance, uh, you know, heart failure causing depression or diabetes causing depression, because we know that those two, those, those sets of conditions are very much interlinked. And then going into the addiction space, then it really is addiction, uh, an, an addiction issue and a um, mental health diagnosis. Now, my question is, why does dual diagnosis not potentially mean an addiction issue plus a medical problem? I don't know. Good question. And perhaps we don't, we, we should be expressing that. Um, or should we be talking about triple diagnoses? Because you know, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, you know, dual diagnosis in, in, in our neck of the woods really is understood to be a mental health and a, and a, an addiction diagnosis. But rarely do I see a patient who has a mental health diagnosis and a co-occurring addiction diagnosis without a co-occurring physical health diagnosis on top of that. So I'm, 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 you know, I'm beginning to move into this idea of triple diagnosis. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, 
makes me think that I value your input as the addiction medicine specialist here because of, I see things with the prism of obviously psychiatry and mental health. But you're absolutely right. And sort of reflecting on that fact that addiction doesn't exist in a silo, it has effects on yeah. mental health, physical health, psychosocial as well. Yeah, yeah. And I well, suppose, you know, you could argue that, you know, we're pontificating from on high. And, you know, are we counting the number of angels that can dance upon the head of a pin? Or is it actually clinically relevant? Oh, it absolutely is. I think this is the big reason why dual diagnosis, co-occurring and comorbidity between mental health and AD mm. may have a bit more prominence. Um, not saying that's right, because I think physical health sequelae and consequences of AID use is very important. Um, but we also, I think it comes from the sort of recognition that mental health disorders can be triggered, exacerbated, or by substance use disorders and vice versa. And the interplay through both can be quite major and also affect treatment outcomes or, or outcomes in general. So we know that particularly with co-occurring mental health and AOD, it's often, there's often this, this repeated mantra that it's the norm, not the exception. And yeah. I don't know if that's because we, both you and I work in very tertiary levels, so we get to see tip of the iceberg. But I think in general, the epidemiology does actually reflect you know, yeah, there is a so, lot of options. people have have both. What 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 do you reckon the prevalences are? You know, in in primary care versus secondary care. For dual I diagnosis. The, I don't have the figures to hand. I have to look it up somewhere. Um, but I've got we, figures in my head of yeah. roughly thirty five percent of patients with an addiction disorder in primary care have a co-occurring mental health disorder and you effectively double that once you get into secondary care into the level that we're working at but yeah. i don't have i mean you know going back to the point about clinical relevance you know i in, in terms of this concept of the triple diagnosis you know i i i don't actually have figures for you know physical illness impacting upon or co-occurring with either mental health or addiction diagnoses, but that too is highly relevant for the prognos for the for the management and prognosis of of patients. I mean, if I can talk about a like for instance, like chronic pain or people being on long-term opioid therapy, we know that you know fifty percent of people on long-term opioid therapy have depression. We know that fifty uh, percent of people on long-term opioid therapy have suffered some form of abuse or violence. We know that 30% of them have got an alcohol use disorder. We know that uh, I think 30 to 50% of them have got, um, you know, issues with, uh, you know, poor psychosocial living arrangements. And then we know that 80% um, of them have got multiple types of pains. Now that's just one example. If you take pain as a, as a kind of a separate diagnosis. So the idea that we're arguing about pinheads and angels is, is, is false because this is really, really relevant to understanding the individual and then making a treatment plan. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. And just to throw more numbers out there, I think the numbers you sort of quote are very similar to any other mental health disorder. So if you, I think there are studies showing that any in the wider Australian population, for example, mm -hmm. you're going to have rough, almost half, so 45% will have a mental disorder any time in their lifetime. And then any roughly about 20% of that of the whole entire population will have a mental disorder lasting more than 12 months. So, you know, I'm talking about chronic sort of disability in some ways. Mm, yeah. And then it's interesting you quoted those figures for chronic pain, how many will have a, a depression or mental health. 
Um, I don't know the breakdown for primary care and tertiary care, like the original question was, but I think the figure again stands about 45% of all mental health clients will have problems with drug and alcohol. So all substance use disorder diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's about a 50-50 intersection, isn't there, if you're taking a, a global holistic view? Yeah, and if you think about that, that's not a minority of patients. No, it's not. And again, I don't have the tertiary figures, but it feels like all the kind of patients I see and what you see in tertiary care, it's it's will be very rare that they don't have a mental health disorder. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I guess it sort of highlights again what, why we're told to talk about. You're absolutely right about angels are dancing in pain. I'm, I'm liking that metaphor. Um, but again, sort of emphasizing we need to have that very holistic view of, our, of yeah. people's issues. And also, I think it also reflects that it's never, you know, complex problems require complex solutions. Um, you can't be reductionistic in some ways. In order to best manage addiction issues, you can't just focus on the physical or the biological. You can't just focus on mental health. Well, I can't just focus on social. You do need to have that sort of broad spectrum approach in some ways. Yeah. So I, I liken this, I mean, this, this speaks to me in terms of lifestyle medicine, and I liken this as having multiple holes in a roof. If you don't plug all of the holes in the roof, when it rains, you're still cold, wet, and miserable. Even if you've plugged nine out of the 10 holes, if you've still got one hole there in the roof, it doesn't work. Absolutely. Um, and then I think the interesting question, which probably leads on to our next point, is how do those holes in the roof come about in some way? Or is it the rain? Yeah. Is it the hole? Is it the uh, construction of the house? Just to stretch this metaphor as far as I can. <laughs> but it sort of leads into like how we understand, particularly if we're going to focus on drug and alcohol use and mental health, how do they actually link in some ways? Like I think you can also draw that bow to to try to understand the linkage between mental health, physical health, and drug and alcohol. I mean, just off the top of my head, it's really interesting you mentioned it in physical health in this context, because we know with people with long-term mental health disorders, their health outcomes in general are much poorer than the general public. So smoking rates are higher. So you're going to think about yeah. cancer rates and liver health. Yeah. So very much on board with that idea. Yeah. No, I mean, if we, if we take a specific example of that, you know, people, patients diagnosed or patients with a diagnosis rather of borderline personality disorder and a co-occurring co substance use disorder have an overall prognosis worse than the average prognosis for cancer. Yep. And there so, are studies I think will show, you know, worse retention rates, higher dropout rates, uh, higher sort of adverse effects from um, treatment and treatment yeah. adherence as well. Yeah. All around. I think I can, I can never remember it all because it always has the same sort of theme, just Worse, worse and worse and worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about a framework in which or by which we can conceptualize this idea of co-occurring mental health and addiction diagnoses. Yeah. yeah. So going back to the, I guess it's all that, the uh, what leads to one. And I guess that's mm -hmm. the tricky part, given that it's complex. So you can have, there's possibly a couple of ways you can construe how drug and alcohol use and mental health use can get into play. So the first is that very direct causal relationship. So again, you're thinking both sides. Does the drug and alcohol use lead to mental health issues? So for ex example, it's well known with methamphetamines. And at one point in time, we also knew that cannabis as well. Long use in very vulnerable patients who have underlying vulnerabilities for whatever reason can lead to psychosis. 
without sort of intoxication, drug and psychosis, or long-term chronic uh, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. Yeah. And on the flip side, you can have the other way, does the mental health uh, psychopathology lead to drug and alcohol use? Is um, So, for example, if you've got long-term mental illness and you know, life's very unbearable, are you turning to drug and alcohol use to help cope with the symptoms, to feel, to alleviate symptoms of dysphoria in some ways? Yeah, there, therein lies this concept of self-treatment around that need, isn't it? You know, the, mm. the mental health disorder causes the addiction disorder. I mean, I can think of a couple of, of examples for that. So, you know, for instance, uh, generalized anxiety disorder or an anxiety disorder or a trauma disorder can use to the use of illicit benzodiazepines, or for instance, an undiagnosed, untreated ADHD can then lead to the quest for for treatment and the, the use of illicit methamphetamines. Yeah. Um, I mean, are there um, any other examples of that? Yeah, uh, alcohol, long-term alcohol use. Alcohol we know is a depressant in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yes, you get a bit of disinhibition and you feel a bit mm -hmm. euphoric, get intoxicated but long term it is yeah. depressing in itself yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll talk maybe a bit later about you know assessment and management but mm. again it's that trick of trying to tease out what came yeah. before in some ways because then you can also think that someone who's depressed and has a lot of life stresses will turn to alcohol to help cope with the sort of the stress yeah. and the, the the mood symptoms that come about mm -hmm. uh, people I know have a recent patient who because of the depression Turn to methamphetamines because methamphetamines was the only way that sort of euphoric effect from the intoxication was the only way they actually felt good about themselves because part yeah. of the condition was this very chronic poor self-image which got alleviated when they were high in some ways and you know i i ask my patients part of my assessment during my assessment i ask my patients what does the drug do for you Absolutely. And I suppose that's really the one of the keys to understanding this relationship, you know. Yeah. And so uncommon sort of themes when you ask that question, I find is one is it's a way of coping. So mm -hmm. that's sort of a maladaptive way of coping. In lieu of in a person who doesn't really have other ways of coping, so often when we try to formulate these patients after assessment, um, you know, you always have to ask the question, why this patient why now? So why did this patient in particular develop the alcohol use disorder or the methamphetamine disorder when someone else who may experience the same circumstances didn't? And often you might want to go really back to their life history. You know, They never learned how to cope with the stressors, whether that's because of poor attachment, because of other life, adverse life conditions. Um, and because of that, it was easier just to have a drink or get high amongst friends. And that became a learned pattern. I always sort of will advocate, particularly when I'm teaching juniors, that no one ever does anything for no reason. I mean, even from an objective point of view, it seems quite silly and quite harmful. There's a reason why people do this. And mm. because it's much preferable than living in constant psychic pain or constant sort of distant despair in some ways, yeah. in yeah. lieu of any other positive sort of ways of coping. Yeah. Despair is a is a terrible thing that... that a combination of pain and loss of hope for the future. Um, yeah, and, you know, sometimes drugs are the only way out. Mankind is very good at managing acute pain. It's, it, we have problems managing chronic pain. I think because uh, quick fixes are very alluring in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm thought, look, 
I sometimes get in trouble when I'm talking to, in this context, in addiction and talking to students and juniors. Drugs, in some ways, drug and alcohol are great. Because, and that's the only way people get get sort of attracted to them because it does have an effect that people want. Yeah. If it was a not desirable effect, people wouldn't take it. Exactly. It's yeah. a correlate long term, the consequences yeah. and all that sort of the physical and the mental health side of things that yeah. Yeah. Get, you, get bite you in the ass eventually. So are there any other frameworks within which to kind of look at uh, co-occurring disorders? We've looked at drugs causing it, uh, mental health, and we've looked at mental health causing drugs. Are there any other? So those two are what we will call the sort of direct causal relationships. Yeah. And you can think about the other side of things being the indirect causal relationships. Yeah. And again, this speaks to the complexity that people are not just, you know, factor A linked to factor B that equals C. It's an interplay of many different things. So when I talk about indirect causal relationships, you can imagine that one disorder, either drug and alcohol or mental health, can impact a factor which increases the, the likelihood of the second disorder developing. So simple example, there's a lot of talk. <laughs> I'll try to try a simple example. If you have early onset drug use in your life, so in your teenager, adolescent years, yeah. that can lead to school dropout. And if yeah. you drop out from school, then you're less likely to persist on to, let's, let's say, to uh, sort of fulfilling or meaningful employment, which then leads to depression. So eventually you got from the, the drug use to the depression, but there were a couple of steps along the way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we also, I mean, thinking about cannabis, I mean, we also understand now that cannabis is an epigenetic risk factor for the early emergence of uh, schizophrenia. So it doesn't necessarily cause schizophrenia, but it's a risk factor for exposing it in someone who's otherwise predisposed. Yeah. I think you're alluding to another sort of way of saying a third way of seeing that link. That's a sort of common factors or the common risk factors. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's a genetic vulnerability or a neurotransmitter deficiency or a neurocognitive sort of deficit that leads to schizophrenia, but also puts you at higher vulnerability of developing a substance use disorder or another impulse control disorder. Yeah, you can talk about yeah. other things like um, temperament and so individual factors like temperament, character, personality. If you're, let's say, one of the personality disorders more um, with a high tendency to impulsivity, you're going to have probably higher risk of drug use, perhaps, but also high risk of developing mental health issues from that as well. Um, and then there's also thinking about that bias, like a social approach, the social sort of factors. So just having a lower social economic um, status, so being poorer and not having enough access to education or health in, from an early age, that can predispose you to a lot of substance use and also predispose you to a number of mental health disorders as well. Yeah, talking about that, I, I very much view substance use disorders as a symptom of social inequity. Um, I, I think it's, and I suppose really by that I'm saying that it's really important to understand that, that um, substance use disorder is not just about the person or the drug, it's also about the context. Um, and that can really heavily uh, impact upon the trajectory of someone's life. So you can have, you know, twins separated at birth and one is brought up by a rich family. Uh, he dabbles in drugs at his private school, gets expelled, and then goes to a state school, tidies his act up, and gets, does well at school, becomes a lawyer. And then the other twin, you know, uses drugs in the streets, and then you know, brought up in a family without good resources, falls into the wrong crowd, uses drugs in the streets, then becomes a drug dealer, 
and one twin prosecutes the other twin. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, that's an extreme version of the story, but I think it's a valid point to make. Yeah. And I may make a controversial statement. Sometimes I feel we do a lot of good work in our area, but sometimes I feel the most effective interventions or life changes doesn't come from health professionals. We can give all the medications and prescribe all the therapy to a patient, but sometimes for a lot of individuals, it's the fact that they got a job or that they reconcile yeah. with family that we have no influence on sometimes. Yes. It's yeah. the biggest outcome for their sort well, of life. I, mean, I, I don't actually think that's controversial. I, well, sorry, I, I agree with you. It is controversial in the following regard. I mean, I don't accept that as controversial at all. That to me is a stating the obvious, especially when we view illness through the socio-psycho-biomedical lens. But like I've got a number of patients and they all say, and they're, they're doing quite well now. They say to me, oh, Dr. Armstrong, you really helped me through, you know, this tough time and I'm feeling better now. And I look at them and I say to them, I've done nothing for you. The reason why you are better is because of something positive in your life. You've regained your relationship with someone. You've, you've got a job, you've done something. It's all on you. I've just, you know, you know, listen to you and contain your distress as you yourself have improved your life. Mm. And I'll pick up also, you talked about, um, just as a side note, the PTSD and uh, benzo use. That leads on to, I think, the fourth way I would think about the connection, and that's the bidirectional way. So accumulation of all both models to talk about, <laughs> then one sort of sustaining the other. So either disorder can increase vulnerability to either disorder. And sustain it. So we talked about PTSD in the past sort of talk. You're having PTSD and trauma, you self-medicate with your substance use, but at the same time, your substance use can exacerbate and perpetuate your your mental health issues. So that's uh, the framework. That's the framework. So you're talking about direct causal, indirect causal, um, common risk factors, and that sort of bidirectional model. And I guess, yeah. what does it all mean? Why do we even bother sort of talking about it? I mean, in assessment. Yeah. It, it, it does matter sometimes in assessment and sometimes the trick for, from our point of view is figuring out that temporal connection, that chicken and egg. As a very good example of talking about mood disorders, if you have a heavy alcohol use disorder, you may have mood symptoms or depressive symptoms. Do I, as a psychiatrist, rush in and give you medication, which by nature of most maltreatments are very long-term and can have their side effects? Do I rush in and do that? Or do I treat the alcohol, you stabilize that and then lo and behold, you don't feel depressed anymore because you don't have a whole load of depressant in your system. Mm. And it often comes down to very careful history, temporal sort of connection. Did, were you depressed even before you started drinking? Is there a family history of like everyone was a drinker that may point towards more to one or the other? And then thinking about the individual person's needs and what would be most appropriate in that clinical context. Once you get past the assessment phase and I was talking about treatment, do it, the why we talk about dual diagnosis of co-occurring disorder is that it has it does have big effects on how we manage that. And there's a number of ways that we can go about this. So one is that we treat one problem at a time. That's called mm. sequential treatment. So in this case, yeah, let me detox you and treat your alcohol use, and then let me work on your um, depression, because I can't work on your depression until I solve your alcohol use. Is that's the thinking of sequential thinking? Yeah. Um, no sense, logical. The problem we find is, and as we sort of mentioned many times, complex solutions need to follow for complex problems. And often, like say, for example, I'll give an example, PTSD and substance use, often we find that if you take away one and you don't really address the other, 
your chances of relapsing or, or coming back to the original problem, like your alcohol use, just come back because you haven't treated the trauma. You've taken away the coping strategy, so the trauma exactly. is exactly, just... exactly. That's my biggest frustration with mm. uh, sequential treatments. You know, I'm going to deal with the substance use disorder first without dealing with the mental health. And that's because, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm an addiction medicine specialist. So I'm going to focus on the, on the, on the, on the biological substance. And then they just relapse. Yeah. Because you haven't um, addressed driver for that use. Yeah. Um, and maybe this is, because we've been talking for a while about this, but unfortunately sequential treatment is what's been the norm. And that's the way systems yeah. are run. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we can talk about it a bit later. Yeah, yeah, I think for the sake of relapse prevention, and I think really, if you have a if you have a focus on relapse prevention, it for, forces you to consider dual diagnosis. It forces you to consider triple diagnosis. It forces you to consider holistic care for the patient. And it goes for me. It goes back to the holes in the roof. You've got to plug all of the holes in the roof. And detoxing of one sub off a substance is merely one hole. And dealing with, you know, the mental health diagnosis is merely one hole, you know, unless you've got the housing right, the social, the, the friendships right, the diet right, the, the, the exercise right, it's not going to work. Yeah. And, that's, and I think it speaks to the alternative to sequential treatment, which is parallel treatment. You're doing, yeah. try and plug all holes at once. The problem with that is if the people plugging different holes don't talk to each other, mm -hmm. you sometimes over each other or you sometimes duplicate yeah. work or sometimes you don't coordinate and make bigger holes yeah so and that well that's what happens in healthcare services once therapists doesn't talk to one detox center and patients don't get that sort of integrated care which leads to our third option integrated care having coordinated care whether that's multiple people who just talk to each other or having specialists handle all aspects in a very holistic manner mm. I mean, the evidence is a bit limited, but in theory and from people's experiences, that's probably the best way of doing that. The downside is, and the reason why we have sequential care, I, I think, is because our systems and our don't uh, so don't easily allow that so far. And there's a push to try to make it more integrated in some ways, but it requires a lot of resources, a lot of skills, a lot of um, sort of will, also from an organizational level. Um, but ideally, that idea of integrated, like, like you say, Fixing all the holes in the house in a very coordinated manner would be the, probably the best way to go about it. And on that sweet note, we're going to have to end it there, Dan. We've run out of time, but I, I really want to thank you for your expertise today. And I'd like to invite you back again soon to delve into dual diagnoses again some more. Thanks, Michael. That's all for today's show, folks. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Mm -hmm.